In the beginning, when the earth was fresh and new, the perfection of beauty was shattered by an alien serpent that injected an evil seed into the heart of man. The serpent had said, Do as you please and become as God. Eve swallowed the lie, and in seeking to grasp a nature that she believed was superior to that in which she had been made, rejected the likeness of God. She thought to break through the glass ceiling and elevate self, but instead her mind was darkened and she became a slave to selfishness and pride. By turning from God to do as he pleased, mankind took on the very likeness of the serpent. The very nature of man, his thoughts, his feelings, his desires were corrupted. Even his best intentions, his highest aspirations, his noblest efforts were now evil. The affliction was incurable. Having once been contaminated, there was nothing man could do to eradicate the evil from within his soul. There was no cure for that deadly pathogen, the seed of sin that had embedded itself within man's heart. At first its curse rested on the world lightly, but eventually the heart of man became so desperately wicked and deceitful above all things that everything that man would touch, his own children even, and even all of nature, animate and inanimate, would become corrupted and decayed. Before mankind now lay nothing but despair, a future of futile suffering and death, the hopelessness of certain doom. Presuming to have become enlightened by the fall, men became utter fools. Having abused their own liberty and lost its privileges, they now sought to restrict the liberty of others. Despairing of God's blessings, they now sought to bless themselves at the expense of others. Having fallen into depravity and despair, they now asserted superiority over all others. The ideals of liberty Fraternity and equality gave way to the reality of injustice, slavery, selfishness and oppression. Looking down on what had become of God's once perfect creation, all heaven wept. What was to be done? Would God allow sin to completely corrupt and destroy his entire creation? Or would he destroy man to save the rest of his creation. In his infinite pity and mercy, he who had created man and had surrounded him with all his goodness, intending man's life to be one of peace and joy and constant praise, determined to sacrifice his perfect creation in order to give fallen man the gift of hope. God promised to man that while the incurable pathogen of sin would spread even to the point of bruising his own heel, one would come born of a woman to crush the serpent's head and destroy the work of the devil. He would make it possible for those who despised the evil deep within themselves to be redeemed from it by persistently turning away from it and determinedly seeking God to be restored into his likeness. Those who sorrowed over their corrupted natures cherished this hope and looked forward to the coming of the promised one. But others like Cain saw no need for redemption. They were happy just as they were. They refused to live circumspectly, 
wanting rather to indulge their natural desires. The wicked busily sought to gratify their own selfishness at the expense of those seeking to suppress the evil within. As the centuries passed and the curse of sin became deeper and more widespread, the fulfilment of God's promise tarried. And it seemed like the destiny of those who looked forward to redemption was no different from those who cared not for it. Large numbers lost hope in God's promise. They said, where is the sign of his coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they had from the beginning of creation. 2 Peter 3.4 Through Enoch and Noah, God communicated with fallen man that his patience with sin was coming to an end and that the wicked would have the reward just as certainly as those who looked for the promise. He said, Enoch said in Jude 1.14, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Yet they refused to hear, and the selfish indulgence of man became so great that the earth was completely defiled with violence and sin. So few remained that resisted evil and looked forward to the promise of redemption from themselves that God determined to destroy the world and everything in it to save these eight souls. After the flood, as the centuries rolled on, the eight became thousands, then millions, and they forgot the lessons from the past. Most did not care for the promise, choosing instead to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season rather than to afflict their souls with the people of God. Hebrews 11.25 only a few preserved the knowledge of God and looked for redemption, like Job, who declared, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Job 19.25 As the curse of sin rested more heavily upon the earth, the wicked also now desired to avoid its evil results. They invented gods to presumably save them from the consequences of sin while they continued to enjoy it. These gods were just superheroes, having the same corrupted nature and desires as man. These false gods well nigh obliterated the knowledge of God's holiness and his perfection and his promise to redeem man from his inner corruption and to restore in him a perfect holy nature. A deeper darkness overspread the earth. They forgot that God is not a man, that he should lie, neither the son of man, that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? To preserve the truth and keep alive the hope of his coming, God decided to separate unto himself a special people. He called Abraham to be the father of that people through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God declared, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. Genesis 49.10 But only a few hundred years later, while living among the Egyptian idolaters, even his chosen people lost sight of God's holiness and their need of redemption from the serpent's venom. 
the Lord God revealed himself to Moses to call his people out of Egypt that they might again learn of God's character, his justice, mercy and their need of redemption. Moses also gave them a tabernacle that through its types and symbols they might begin to understand the plan of redemption. There was depicted the fate of sin and sinners and how penitent man might be delivered from sin and be restored to communion with God. God also reaffirmed to Moses the coming of the promised one. He said, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him yet shall ye hearken, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. From time to time, prophets kept the hope of the coming of the Messiah alive in their minds. Numbers 24:17. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. Zechariah 9, 9-10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the colt the foal of an ass, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. Yet the promise still tarried, and Satan again deceived those who waited for the coming of the just one. They confused Baal for Jehovah, imagining he was just like the other pagan gods, Rather than redeem man from the evil within, they imagined Jehovah could only save them from its evil consequences, not from its corruption. Thus they defeated the very purpose of his coming, and the hope in the promise became a cloak to cover their guilt, a license for sin, an excuse to indulge in the supposedly inescapable corruption of their souls. Few desired to be redeemed from their own evil desires, for they loved the wages of unrighteousness. Second Peter 2.15 And we read the description of God's people. Isaiah 1.21 How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the course of the widow come unto them. Jeremiah 7.8 Behold, ye trusting lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, or saved, to do all these abominations? Isaiah 31, Woe unto the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. In Jeremiah 6.14, 
that heal the hurt of the door of my people slightly saying peace peace when there is no peace his coming was not to save and comfort people in their sins but to save them from their sins as the angel declared in Matthew 1.21 and he, she shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins not only did they misunderstand the work and character of the promised one but they misrepresented it to the nations around them to preserve any hope for the redemption of man God was forced to destroy the people which he had established by his own might and power the small remnant that remained that survived were carried away bound unto captivity and scattered among the heathen to these few God renewed the promise of the coming redeemer and revived their hope Isaiah 61.1 the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek he hath sent me to bind up the broken hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound God also told them that not only would he set them free and re-establish them in the promised land, but that the promised one would come at an appointed time. Habakkuk 2.3 For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. They were also told the exact year when the promise would be fulfilled. 70 weeks of years, or 69 times 70 years, after the command to rebuild Jerusalem would Messiah appear to overcome sin and establish righteousness. Daniel 9, 24. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision of the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the priest shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. The command to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem was given in 457 BC and the time indicated the Messiah would come and begin his work of restoration in the year 27 AD. For a time, the returned Jewish exiles looked forward to the one who would come to redeem their souls from the seed of the serpent that lodged deep within their hearts. However, within a few generations, their minds were again perverted and misled about the purpose and nature of his coming. This time they did not desire the Redeemer to overlook their cherished sins and save them in sin, but they expected him to come and reward them, to reward their efforts at overcoming sin and grant them the spoils of righteousness. They looked for the promised one to commend their self-interest and good works. They had no need of redemption from the serpent's venom that lodged deep in their souls. They were proud of their keeping of God's law, even while their souls remained corrupted within. 
Instead, they look for one to overthrow their oppressors, to lead their armies to victory against their enemies, to establish their kingdom forever, to grant them temporal prosperity, to shower them with divine blessings. They look for exaltation, for their selfish ambitions to be gratified, for their pride to be justified, for their hypocrisy excused. They had preserved the knowledge of his coming, but had completely lost sight of his purpose to redeem man and restore him to the image of God. Without this regeneration, man's case was hopeless. Their minds were darkened, misconstruing God's promises. They had come to believe that God would accept their attempts of obtaining godliness without regeneration. They were self-satisfied with their own efforts and even proud of their twisted understanding. Their expectations about the coming Messiah and their readiness to receive him were completely and utterly wrong. Malachi 3.2 says, But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. His coming would by necessity be as the unsheathing of a sword, but not the sword of the flesh that they expected to defeat their enemies, but the sword of the Spirit that would cut them to the very core. He would come not to execute vengeance on those who knew not the law, but to overthrow the power of sin in the hearts of those who claimed to keep the law. He would come not to set free captives from prisons of stone and iron, but from cages of deception and error. Nor would he come to set free those enslaved to others, but those enslaved to the tyranny of self, to their own habits, passions, addictions, evil thoughts, self-deceptions and selfish desires. He would come not to justify the prevailing religious ideas and practices and reward his chosen people, but to undermine their self-confidence, to abase their pride, to denounce their selfishness and to show his people their transgressions. He would come to open the eyes of the spiritually blind to see the corruption within themselves that in turning away from themselves to God in faith, they might be restored into his image. The prophets had also revealed that in exposing their hypocrisy, selfishness and pride, he would be an offence to those who claimed to be waiting for his coming. Isaiah 8.14 And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offence to both houses of Israel, for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and taken. Luke 2.34, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. In not gratifying their desires, he would be unpopular, and rejected. Isaiah 53, 1, For he shall grow before him as a tender plant and as a root of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, 
And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would be persecuted, hunted from place to place, be cast into prison and put to death. Yet this would not defeat the purpose of his coming, to redeem man from the evil that the serpent had implanted in his heart. As we read in Isaiah 53, 12, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for him sin, he shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied, because he has poured out his soul unto death and made it intercession for the transgressors. We can only marvel at God's love for stubborn, obstinate, rebellious man. That knowing what lay before him, the path that he must tread, his determination to come into the world to break the power of sin that had bound a man in unbreakable chains and restore the image of God in man was unshaken. As you read in Hebrews 10, 5-9, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Just months before Christ's first advent, God sent a man whose name was John to prepare his people to receive the one that they looked not for. This had also been foretold. Isaiah 40, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Malachi 3, 1, behold, I send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. And he shall go before him in the spirit of power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people for the Lord. And John lifted up his voice like a trumpet. He cried out and spared not. He exposed the corrupt condition of God's professed people and showed the house of Jacob their sins. He revealed the need of those who waited for Christ to be saved, not from external evils, but from the evil within their own hearts. He called all that would listen to awaken from their self-assurance, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But few accepted the message of repentance. Few looked forward to the coming of one whom God had exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a saviour, to give repentance to Israel for forgiveness of sin. Then, finally, the long-awaited day came to the complacent Jews. Galatians 4, 4-5 When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that they might receive the adoption of sons. But even more unexpected, than the day of his coming 
was who it was that came. This had been a mystery which had been kept secret since the world began. As we're told in Romans 16.25, it was Christ himself who had spoken face to face with Abraham and who declared, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad before Abraham was. I am. It was Christ that Isaiah saw in vision as we're told about in John 12.41 when Isaiah declared in chapter 6 verses 1, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, the King, the Lord of hosts. There was no excuse for the identity of Christ to be unknown. The prophets had revealed that it was he who had in the beginning been with God and who was God, and through whom all things were made that would himself come. As we read in Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Thou, thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me. He that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been from old, from everlasting. Isaiah 9.6 For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Zechariah 2.10 Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And every time I read the word Lord here, it's capitalised. The Jewish word is Jehovah. Seth Jehovah. Jeremiah 23, 5-6 Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord Jehovah, our righteousness. And Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The very same mighty God, the everlasting Father, whose name is Jehovah, humbled himself and fashioned himself as a man and was begotten into the world. This was the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 Not made as an angel, but as a man according to the flesh, under the law of carnal inheritance, the law of sin and death. The same law that Paul said, I find the law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bring me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Only by climbing down himself into the miry pit that we are in could he lift us out. Only taking upon himself not just our guilt, but our corrupt nature could we, we be redeemed. Like us, he could therefore have no confidence in his human flesh, in his will, in his words. This is why he came not to do his own will, but to do the perfect will of his Father. He came not to speak his own proud words, but the words of truth from the Father. He came not in self-confidence, in pride and presumption, 
but in humility, meekness and continual dependence upon God. He came not to seek his own pleasure, but to drink a cup of woe. He came not in splendour, but in humble obscurity. He came not in might, but in weakness. He came not in riches, but in poverty. He came not to assert himself, but to abase himself. He came to show fallen man how he might be restored into the image of God. That joy and peace may again reign amongst the children of men. An example that we should follow in his steps. An example of godly self-abandon, of goodness, of temperance, of gentleness and of no compromise with sin. As the angelic host gathered in the heavens to announce the coming of the Prince of Peace to dwell among men, they searched to find who among those to whom the promises had been given would receive their tidings with joy. They were amazed and disappointed by the indifference of those who for generations claimed to be waiting for him. Eventually, they found a few lowly shepherds who would welcome the world's Redeemer. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and good will towards men. Frustrated at finding no one else amongst the millions of Israel who really cared, the angels turned their search to the Gentiles. There they found three strangers from a distant land who perceived man's need to be saved from the evil within himself and had by searching the scriptures discovered him on whom it had been prophesied would bring in everlasting righteousness. And we read in Matthew 1.21 Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king behold there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And verses 10 to 11. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They found the king of heaven in a manger. A wooden box where animals feed from. He who gave up the majesty and glory of heaven for man 
found there was no room for him among men. He must exchange the worship of angels in the courts of heaven, not for the adoration of men in kingly courts, but for the companionship of dumb beasts. Unappreciated by men, he must trade his heavenly throne for a rude feeding trough. Christ's glory was not in the angelic host who announced his birth, but in the humble manger. His glory was not in the adoration of highly respected wise men, but in making himself of no reputation. His glory was not in being born a king, but in taking the form of a servant. His glory was not in his miraculous birth, but in his life of self-denial and death. His glory was not in receiving expensive worldly gifts from men, but in giving everything he had to men. How few of those who had waited so long for his glorious appearing were willing to share in that glory. Is that the glory you're hoping to share in? It was the direct opposite of what they had looked for. Therefore, his coming was unwelcome. Scripture says, John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What a scandal. Today, he stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Is there room in your heart for him now? Or are you too preoccupied with your own self-interest, your problems, or your religious activities? The scripture records only two other people who rejoiced at his coming. Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and Anna the prophetess, who looked for redemption in Israel. All the others who were supposedly waiting for his coming had no need for a helpless babe born into poverty, who could do nothing for himself, let alone gratify their desires. They desired an august and glorious king to endorse and reward their religious beliefs and practices. He came to redeem man from the corruption within themselves, but men loved themselves more than they loved righteousness. He came to bring faith and repentance to men, but man preferred self-righteous presumption. He came to reveal the glory of God, full of grace and truth, but they cared not for grace and truth, preferring indulgence and theological fables. He came to grant fallen man mercy mingled with justice, but men preferred tyranny mingled with licentiousness. He came that men might treat each other as brothers, but man preferred to exercise authority over others. He came to make men compassionate, helping one another, but man preferred to exploit the weaknesses of others. He came to restore man to the liberty that man had lost 
but man chose bondage rather than sacrifice because without sacrifice there can be no liberty he came to restore in man the image of God but they chose to retain the image of the serpent and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glories of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth in him was life and his life was the light of men and light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not and this is the condemnation that light is coming into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil they could not understand the light because their natural mind cannot understand the things of God. In their darkened minds they sought to be justified in the indulgence of their pride, in the gratification of their selfishness and in the promotion of their own righteousness. Christ called to repentance, to the humbling of their pride, the stripping away of their self-righteousness and the denouncing of their selfishness was to them not light, but darkness, just as the prophet had also foretold in Amos 5.18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. They expected his coming to bring them justification, celebration and glory but instead it brought them condemnation, confusion and strife. They looked for him to come to defeat evil and make it a better place for themselves, but they could not see that he could do no such thing unless the evil within their own hearts was first overthrown and man restored to the image of God. In refusing to let go of the evil in their own hearts, the only way Christ could defeat evil was to overthrow them along with it, which he did 40 years later at the destruction of Jerusalem. But as many as received him, to them gave him power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, 2,000 years later, on this day, the Christian world remembers the first advent of Christ. But they do not remember him who left his celestial home to dwell with us in crude dwellings made with hands about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, in late autumn before the colder winter in Palestine made it difficult to be out with the flocks by night. Instead, they remember another Christ, one whose birthday is that of the ancient sun god, Tammuz. One who supposedly suffered so that we can continue to indulge in our selfishness and pride. One who gave his life so that we might indulge ourselves in gluttonous merriment. One who came to bring assurance and comfort to the unconverted and to pacify the consciences of the unregenerate. One who rewards our flawed attempts to serve God while clinging to our carnal natures. 
one who promises salvation by means of cultivating the supposed good within you. Your own good intentions, your own sincerity, your own good prayers, your good deeds, your good devotions, your religious ideas, your presumption. Even though all of our righteousnesses are as disgusting, filthy rags. They do not desire the true Christ. The one who came to unsettle the faith of those who felt sure of their standing with God. They do not remember him who declared, Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. They do not remember him who said that in the last day many will cry out, Lord, Lord. And he will reply, I never knew you. Depart from me. They do not remember him who came to break the spirit that is within man and to strip away our self-confidence our selfishness and pride. They do not remember him that told us that only those who overcome their flesh and become partakers of his divine nature in this life shall be clothed in white raiment. They do not remember him who said that unless we first die and are born again of the Spirit, we shall never see the kingdom of God. Irrespective of our good intentions, our good feelings, our knowledge of the truth, our religious beliefs, our church standing. They do not remember him who calls us to be drowning continually in repentance that we might walk in the Spirit. They do not remember him who calls us to follow in his footsteps, dying moment by moment, being crucified with him, a living sacrifice. They do not desire the joy that comes from the knowledge that Christ has heard our continual sorrow for sin and accepted our sacrifice. They do not desire the peace that passes all understanding that comes when self is subdued and contrition has calmed the strife of human passion. The careless multitudes, even self-professed Christians, cry out, Not this man! Away with him! The real meaning of Jesus' birth is not an occasion for indulging oneself or receiving gifts or having a big party or to feel that because of his birth our place in heaven is guaranteed. Instead, Christ specifically came down from heaven with a message to urgently call not infidels, not the Gentiles, but his own Sabbath-keeping, Bible-believing church to repentance. The key message of Christ's first advent was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he ascended back to heaven, Jesus promised that he would come again to take back with him those that have kept his word. Since that time, the serpent has again been repeating his lie. In jest, my interpretation of God's word, and your spiritual eyesight will be open, and ye shall become like Christ. And so be ready for his appearing. His attractive interpretations have deceived as many today about Christ's second advent, 
as the Jews were deceived about his first advent. How many will be found having kept Christ's word? What was it in the New Testament that Jesus repeatedly commanded all men and specifically his church to do? Was it only to believe or to make long prayers or to give more money or to gain more church members? No. He commands all to exercise an abiding, continual repentance. In fact, the last words of Christ to his church, seven times did he tell them to repent. And so the key message of his second coming is again the same. To repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he comes again, how many will he find that have kept his word? Oh, he may find many Sabbath keepers. He may find many people who have not killed. He may find many people who don't lie. But have they kept his word? This time, the angels will not be amazed. For Christ has warned us that his coming, like a thief in the night, will catch many unprepared. Even those who claim to be waiting for his coming. He said in Luke 18.8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? You know, faith is more than just believing his promise. Satan believes his promises. There is much religious belief in the earth today, but little faith. Faith requires a sacrifice. Those Jews who waited for his first advent believed that he would come, but they had no faith. They would not sacrifice their ambitions, their pride, their self-assurance at Christ's call for repentance. Just as it was a sacrifice for Jesus to come to earth as a man to live among men, it cost something of those who would go to be with Christ to heaven and live among angels. He sacrificed himself to restore in you the image of God. Will you sacrifice yourself to be restored into his image? It is not your goods, your time, your money that Jesus requires you to lay on the altar of sacrifice. No, no. He requires you to sacrifice who you are. Your very being, your self-image, your reputation, your ambitions, your self-confidence, your selfishness, your pride. Because as Psalms 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Faith cannot exist without a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Without this, it is merely presumption. Christ said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all ye that labour, and that are heavy laden, and he shall give you rest. Take his yoke upon you, and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. But unfortunately, Jesus Christ is as misunderstood today as he was 2,000 years ago. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it is still a burden and it entails a yoke. 
Today the majority of those who would celebrate the first advent of Christ neither comprehend his yoke nor his burden. They have cut off his yoke and discarded his burden. They have found a more self-pleasing sacrifice. The yoke of repentance that Christ has called us to bear has been cast off by those who claim to look for his coming. The burden of self-distrust and self-abhorrence has been discarded and replaced with presumption. Without abiding repentance, there can only be presumption, which is the counterfeit of faith. There can be no real faith without true repentance upon which it is founded. Without repentance, there can only be belief, but not faith. And so we ask, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find repentance on the earth? Instead of repentance, we look for his coming to obtain personal vindication, justification of our religious ideas, the fulfilment of our hopes and gratification of our ambitions. Are we as misguided about Christ's second advent as were the Jews about his first? We look forward to Christ's second coming to partake in his glory. But will we, to our surprise, Similarly, fine, when Christ comes that his glory is not what we expect nor desire? Will our expectations make for us the day of his coming a day of darkness and not light, a day of confusion and strife? Who are you waiting for? A king of kings to reward you with immortality honour and glory or a self-denying servant to complete the work in you of extinguishing self that he has begun in those who are of a broken and contrite spirit and to restore them to the selfless image of God. Do you long to decrease that he might increase until the last vestige of self is lost in him? Will you, as it says in 1 John 3, 2, when he shall appear be like him? When you shall see him as he really is? Very soon the sign of the Son of Man will again appear and the angels shall gather in the heavens to announce his coming. Will you be one of the very few that will be ready to receive him with joy. I pray that we are among that number.